Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. In Imbi Neem's novel, kind of, sort of, maybe, but probably not... We have the potential of relationships forming, a mystery to solve, and psychological quirkiness in a number of characters. So, Imbi, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me, David and Lisa. Let's start with Phoebe. Phoebe Cotton's brain was like a mixing desk, where some of the controls were a little bit broken. Fill us in on her condition and what this leads her to do. So... Phoebe Cotton has a condition called misophonia, but she uh, the book is set at a time where that does not have a name yet. So she thinks that this is something that only happens in her brain, that there's something wrong with her, rather than sharing uh, this condition with perhaps up to one in five people, they currently say. So misophonia is an extreme um, aversion or... Uh, Uh, overreaction to small sounds, mainly centred around eating, but could also be sniffling or clicking or tapping a spoon against a cup. It's more than just an annoyance. It's It's an irritation. It's an extreme overreaction. It is white-hot rage. It is full-body clench. It is uh, both a physical and psychological reaction to sound. And I know about this because I have it. We better be very careful how we say things. We've got some interesting quirks and and nuances here. Oh, well, that explains that. But what does that do to her relationships or her idea of self? So she is pretty much withdrawn from the world. She is um, working in a library. Of course, she would work in a library. There's no eating in a library, at least in the 90s. Um, Certainly no chewing of gum. And uh, she is uh, the custodian of her family's home. Her grandmother has moved to a retirement village and she is looking after the family home and taking temporary maternity replacement jobs and sort of drifting, not really living her life. We also then come across Susan or Suze. Explain a little more about the art of being chilled and the concept of un-art, please. Well, Suze also suffers from a, a, a different kind of affliction, which I myself suffered from in my 20s, which is she is much more in love with guys who... who she's in love with guys who are much more in love with themselves than they are anybody else. And uh, her focus is on um, a young gentleman called Jay, which is short for Jonathan, but Jay is much cooler, let's face it. And he is uh, kind of dabbling with performance art, as he did in the 90s, and uh, is embracing the concept of unart, which is kind of non-performative performance. So if you think that sounds wanky, it is. And if you think Jay sounds wanky, he is. But you say these are conditions, but really... Everybody has them to some degree, um, ultimately, and it's just what we make of them. But again, how does this affect Sue's and her relationships? Well, she she is kind of stuck. She's stuck in this kind of sort of maybe relationship, um, but probably not. Um, but she she is not moving forward. She is not kind of she's hanging all of her self worth 
on this guy instead of like owning it herself. Now, before we get on to the mystery, which we'll touch on in a minute, you've set the book back in 1995. I love this. I can identify with this. Answering machines and Melways in the car. You need a Melways, um, etc. But the characters, I was sort of trying to come to grips with how old they actually were. They're not adolescents, but they don't seem to have transitioned to adulthood. Yeah, they're in that kind of that period where you're not you haven't quite fully left the nest but you feel like you're living this independent adult life so for pretty much all of the um characters in the book there's a kind of a transition towards the start of their proper adult life but this is occurring later and later these days people are staying at home long we've seen it in the in the news people even returning home to save money it adolescence seems to be in perpetuity. Yeah. I, I, as, as a mother of um, teenagers and young adults, um, I, I feel like my um, parenting days will actually go on much longer than anyone anticipated. I, I thought you were going to say you experienced this yourself as, a, as an adolescent. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Given no, I was out. I was this, out of home. Dysphonia <laughs> and all the others. Now, we get to the mystery of the postcards from a world tour. They're addressed, in fact, to an Elizabeth Winston from T, and they're turning up at Phoebe's address. But this sort of then brings Phoebe and Sue's and the concept of unart all together, along with Montgomery Smith, who we'll be going into in a moment. Explain this connection, please. So the postcard idea came from an actual postcard that I received um, about six years ago at my home that was misaddressed. And to be honest, the contents of the postcard were quite dull. Um, I did read it. Um, but I thought, what if these postcards kept arriving? I've got no way to return them to the sender. Um, I don't know anyone by this name living on the street. What am I going to do with them? So that was where the idea for the postcards um, came from. But the postcards in the book, yes, they're kind of like a window to another time and another relationship and kind of tying into a lot of themes of longing and and searching of self, um, I think, that are in um, a lot of the characters. And something that's unfulfilled. My dear Elizabeth, we've just arrived in London. It's dirty and grey and crowded. The plane trip lasted forever and ever. I think it will take most of my time in Europe for me to recover. I'm walking around in a dream, seeing faces like yours in the crowd. Yours, always yours. T. There's, OT. <laughs> there's a longing and a sentimentality here. Um, but it all speaks to this fact that we aren't being able to, to realise these relationships, love unrequited. I mean, this is how, in fact, Phoebe meets Montgomery Smith, because what does she do? She takes the postcards to the post office to try and work out what to do with them. Um, and uh, Montgomery, well, Monty's he's behind the counter, but let's just say he's not really an official postal worker and he's winging it because he's just filling in for his mum. But he's pretending to be an adult. Phoebe Cotton is pretending to be an adult. They're both playing adults and at the same time have these sort of like dependences on their, um, on their parents. And basically they've become investigators, detectives, trying to work out mm. where these postcodes, uh, postcodes where, where these postcards come from, who sent them, who were these people. I mean, where did 
Elizabeth Winston fit into the picture? And all of these sorts of things are there. Um, but now, we don't necessarily have a romance novel here. It's more about the psychological insights into people's conduct, which is what makes it so fascinating. These people are quirky. Suze, for example, wants Jay, uh, knows he's fickle, and yet, despite all the advice she gets, she tries to go back to him. She has a very good um, friend who gives very wise counsel that he himself does not follow. But um, And yet, yes, she just, she, like like a dog to its own vomit, except I think the dog probably enjoys its own vomit more than Sue. She really enjoys <laughs> Jay. But you're your own worst enemy mm. in relationships mm. in some ways. Yeah. I mean, Phoebe is preventing herself from having a relationship. Psychologically, she's actively denying herself. And this there's a connection here with an old friend uh, yes. that she doesn't actually... Sandy, explain what's going on there. So Sandy is trying to reach out and reconnect with Sue's... Um, sorry, Phoebe. Go on, get, get characters right, Imby. Um And after quite a few years of them being estranged, they were best friends in high school and Sandy moved to Canberra for um, because she was ill. And there, at the very heart of um, Phoebe's sort of psyche is is she blames herself for, for, for Sandy's illness, which I won't go into too much. But... In many ways, they're both blaming themselves. Yes. So how is it that that has occurred, really, is the question. What What is it about their psychological makeup that does that? Yeah, I think a lot of people, they, they create barriers for themselves so they don't have to be vulnerable. They don't have to expose themselves. So they build build a wall of maybes and excuses and hide behind it. And definitely Phoebe's done that. And then they blame themselves. Yeah. Or, they can't actually talk about it. There's something I've never told you about myself. And so there's that fear mm. people have. So in, in many ways, this isn't about quirky characters. This is about us all, because we all do that in many ways. So, um, I mean, Sandy's blaming herself. Phoebe's blaming herself. Sue's is blaming herself, which means we don't interconnect. There's also another layer here. We've got Dorothy. Ah, Dorothy. Tell us about Dorothy. Dorothy is a very formidable character. She is um, Phoebe Cotton's grandmother. And um, and although she's left the house, you know when you have a job and the and the kind of the manager leaves, but they can never quite let go and they're still sort of micromanaging from afar. Oh, by the way, you might want to update the website. She's very much like that about the garden. And she has a network of spies on the street always feeding back what Phoebe has or hasn't done in the garden. But she's very acerbic, very blunt. But what happens when she moves to the retirement village? She has a new life. It's a new chapter for Dorothy Cotton. And yes, and so we see a change in her, not initially in her relationships with her family, but over time that begins to change too. Now, we can't give away the ending of the book. This, and there are a lot of insights that come along the way as well. Um past, present and future. I'm just wondering how much you can tell us to bring all of this together in some ways because the postcards, uh, Phoebe and Monty, uh, Suze and Jay, they all get, well, resolved or a forward, a path forward is achieved. Yes, I think, I think 
And that path forward is largely through acceptance, acceptance of each other and acceptance of themselves. And an acceptance of a reality mm. about themselves because underneath it all, I mean, Suze is conventional. She goes in with Jay and unart, which is quite bloody, you know, flesh. Awful. Awful on the walls. Mm -hmm. But there's a conservatism. I just want a relationship here. Yeah. So I just want a boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we find all of this in all of the characters across all the ages. Mm. So it is, in fact, quite intriguing, quite realistic in that manner. Not so much a romance, but a... a, a a reality check about just basic human conduct. So the novel is kind of, sort of, maybe, but probably not. The author, Imbi Neem, and it's a Penguin publication. So Imbi, thank you very much for talking oh, with me thanks, today. Thanks, David. Thank you. Lisa, you've got a pre-record, yes, I believe. Yes, I have. I'm going to press play straight away. Karen Vigors is an author of five novels. She joins me today to talk about her latest book called Sidelines. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Lisa. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, thank you. Sidelines takes us into the world of children's sport. I absolutely love the first page of this book. Uh, there is a quote from a sign at a junior club football field, and it reads, These are children. This is a game. The coaches are volunteers. The referees are human. This is not the World Cup. <laughs> this was, uh, was this your inspiration for the work? Well, yeah, it was partly the inspiration. I spent 14 years, 14, 15 years myself as a soccer mum, standing on the sidelines, watching my own kids play and referee sport and uh, soccer. And I saw some interesting behaviour in the that time and occasionally uh, some of it might have been coming from me. So I had my own experience to draw on and observations because novelists are great observers, observations of all that was going on around me. And uh, then there was also an incident which really sparked me to actually write the book. So a brawl broke out at an under-12s game in my hometown. I live in Canberra these days. I'm from the Yarra Valley, but I live in Canberra. And nobody could believe what had happened. I wasn't there, but my daughter could have been in one of the teams involved in the incident, but she missed out because of an injury. And what happened was two of the boys on the field got into a bit of a barney over, I don't know if it was a line call or something like that, and started pushing and shoving and then hit each other. And then a parent ran on, grabbed wow. one child by the throat, another <gasps> parent ran on, and he was about to hit the first when another parent ran on and slammed him from behind. And this was reported in the news and a full-on brawl broke out and nobody could believe it. And I wanted to look into what it was. How could we get so – parents get so obsessed, so focused on their kids needing to win that it could end up in a fight at an under-12s game? Yeah. I mean, that's – absolute fodder for a novel so <laughs> I can see um so a teenage your your one of your strap lines is a teenage sports game descends into a brawl after a controversial line call and and there is some argy-bargy in the book and so I can see where you've um, drawn that from the book addresses many issues including rivalry parental pressure coaching bias and inequity were you conscious of all of these themes when you came to write the novel in that 
very early stage. Yes, Lisa, given that I was drawing from so many years of experience, and even though it's not my story and it's not my kids' story, I was drawing from all the things that I had seen. My daughter uh, and both of my kids had played from grassroots level up into Premier League and my daughter also played at um, elite level, sort of academy level as well. And so I'd seen that it wasn't just occurring at the elite level, it was happening right through. And my son was uh, – he play, he worked as a ref – from when he was 13 to when he was about 19, 20. And he learned a lot from doing that refing, but he also copped a lot of abuse from the sidelines. And I just thought it was, it was so unfair uh, and so horrible, actually, so unnecessary when these are kids themselves trying to learn how to be referees and yet there were parents and coaches adults standing on the sidelines shouting at them and I also saw you know some of the challenges that face young girls young women trying to get ahead in their sport and and so I wanted to look at those sorts of issues as well I saw inequity in teams where coaches said it wasn't all about winning and then it was all about winning and and they would have their favorites on for whole games and everybody else on for part games and and stuff like that so I just wanted to dig into all of that think about the motivations especially from the parental side of things and also what the impact of that is on those on those kids in terms of their enjoyment of their sport their ongoing participation and also their mental health Mm. We, we quite often say you know, one thing and then demonstrate another, don't we? Absolutely. And if you ask parents, any parents, why they want their kids to be involved in any activity, but in, particularly, in, in particular team sport, they would say, you know, they want them to learn to be team players, they want them to be resilient and learn to accept decisions that they don't like and develop friendships and memories and a whole, you know, be physically and mentally fit. They'd say all of those things. They wouldn't say to win at all costs. And yet sometimes that's how some of the parents behave. And that's what they're role modelling to the the kids as well. And you can see it in the children's behaviour. Like this book is set around teens because I wanted to look at other issues of coming of age and, you know, awakening sexuality and all the pressures that are on teens. But, you know, it starts from very young. You see poor behaviour from as early as under sevens from the parents. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. Like, you know, these are just little kids Mm. running out after a ball and they're, you know, killing Max and stuff like that. You hear it. Yeah, and the memories that they're creating are the one about the brawl that happened, you know, on the field rather than actually, um, you know, these happy memories of them being a team or whatever. So uh, one of the great lines in the book is, football is not the only game being played here. I really liked that. Um, So tell me about how you developed these characters um, that, that made up what goes on behind the sport. So first of all, I'll describe um, how the book's structured and, and, and who the characters are. So I don't know if any of your listeners may have read uh, or watched The Slap by Christos Chalkis, but the novel uh, Sidelines is actually structured similarly to The Slap. So there's six characters and each character has a section of the book 
uh, and you don't go back to that character. So there's one section and then the narrative's taken over by the next character and then by the next. I remember that, yeah. Through to the conclusion of the book. And so I decided to write from the perspective of three adult and three teen characters. I planned to write the books for adult, the book for adults, but I wanted to include teen characters because as adults and parents, we often forget what it's like to be a teenager and what's going on inside your head you know, the heads of the young people. So I did spend a lot of time thinking about that. So I chose to write the narrative from the perspectives of two families. One is an upper middle class family that has two lawyers in the family. So it starts with Jonica, the mother, and she's mother to twins, Audrey and Alex, who are both playing on the same team because I wanted to look at both male and female characters. Her husband also has a section. He is a barrister and he's highly competitive. He's one of those people that has to win at everything, whether it be darts or an argument, and he puts lots of pressure on the kids. And Jonic is a bit doubtful about whether this is actually a good thing. Both the kids, both of the twins are highly competitive, uh, just like, and they want to play for the Matildas and the Socceroos, like all kids do after the Women's World Cup. And so, you know, they both uh, are vying to, to get game time and to get onto this, you know, quite a high level team. The other family is a working class Greek family, and they're passionate through, you know, their cultural origins and they're, you know, growing up through playing soccer or football, as you have to call it if you, you've ever really played it. And um, the, the mother there is also living, Carmen, is also living vicariously through her daughter, Katerina. And, and the, when you said, you know, this is football's not the only game going on here, most parents give of their time just from the goodness of their hearts, but some parents will do things and offer their assistance to try and gain advantage for their children. And that's how Carmen is operating. Mm. And the other character is from another family altogether. He's from quite a quite a poor background. His name is Griffin. And he is, in fact, probably the person with the most talent who, if anyone's going to go to the top, it could be him. So I was trying to show these different perspectives mm. and different backgrounds, I suppose, because when one thing about sport is it brings together people that often wouldn't rub up against each other in life and there they are on the sidelines or on the field together. Mm. It was interesting the way you use class in in this work as well. Um, what is it that you – was there any specific message that you wanted to, to say about um, the way we interact and the way we class intercepts sort of our, our relationships in, in this way? Well, I think, for instance, with this, this young, uh, young fellow, Griffin, you know, his family – sees his skill and his ability as a way out of poverty. But yes, when you put some of these people together, um, they don't necessarily always get on. And I also wanted to look at their motivations for pushing pushing their kids. And I think that perhaps uh, Jonica and Ben are more of the helicopter, well, Jonica particularly is one of the helicopter perfectionist types. She's a stay-at-home mother who's trying to do everything to support her children and help them get ahead. Whereas um, the other family, the Greek family, like football is their absolute passion. And I guess within their community, you can gain status by by being good at it and, and by being involved in it. So I think it's always interesting as an author when you can put these kinds of people up against each other and, and see whether the sparks fly or, or see, in fact, 
what they don't say but what they're thinking or what they say behind the scenes about each other because that gives you insight into other people as well. You certainly put a lot of pressure on your characters, which I think is a good thing for a writer. Um, each chapter is is prefaced by a definition of a football term, making it accessible really to, to non-fans of the game. Um, how did you arise at this decision? Well, what it may not be initially clear, but each football term that I use refers to the following character, reflects the following character and their role in the story. So, for instance, the mother that I was telling you about, the stay-at-home, she's a, a lawyer too, but she stayed at home to look after the kids. The term that I use there for her is support because that's what she is doing. She is completely supporting the, the kids and supporting them in their, their life journeys to become what she sees as, as, you know, competent and functional adults in the world. Whereas Carmen, uh, her term was um, was goal poacher because she's kind of trying to find a goal poacher is somebody who sort of hangs around near the goal and takes those opportunities and uses unusual ways to score goals. And that's what she's trying to do, score goals for her daughter in a way, like not, you know, not literally speaking, but but metaphorically speaking, she's trying to help her daughter score those goals by getting more game time or being favoured by the coach. Oh, I love the way that you've incorporated all of those deeper elements of the character on the page in all these different ways. Really clever. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, there are many reasons you suggest that could be the catalyst for this sort of bad behaviour on the field, including... Pressure to fulfil a parent's failed ambition, um, hunger for approval or lack of levity in competition. Um, why, why do adults behave so badly sometimes around their kids and sport, do you think? Well, that's a really good question, Lisa. And what I guess I was trying to do in this book was not necessarily to give all the answers but to turn a mirror um, back onto a society so that we can look at ourselves and, and have a think about that kind of thing. But I, I wonder if in modern society we are becoming more and more the kinds of people, that, or some people anyway, that see their children's success as a reflection of their own success as a parent and become therefore too invested in the winning side of things and forget about why they want their kids to do that, which is, I mean, primarily is supposed to be about fun. It's supposed to be about involvement and all those things that we, we listed before. And I also think we get a bit confused about what success means. It doesn't always mean winning and being the best. And yet sometimes in this society, that's what we get focused on. For some people, success is just getting to the field or going onto the field or participating. And I, I think we have to acknowledge that there are all different levels of success for different people and that, you know, we can't all win all the time. Yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely very, very apt indeed. Um, that is all we have time for today. Um, I'd like to thank you, Karen Vigors, for coming in to be my guest today on Published or Not with your wonderful novel, Sidelines. And who is it published by? It's by Ellen and Unwin. And Lisa, thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful to talk to you and to receive your well-considered questions. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for joining me. Oh.